Hello there and welcome to this very special episode of An Irishman Abroad on a Sunday, our main interview episode of the week. If you want to become a patron of the show, it's easy. Head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and see all the other good stuff that we do each week. On a Tuesday, we've Sonia O'Sullivan with our running podcast. On a Friday, we've Marion McKeown with the Irishman Inside America. And next week, we will release a fresh selection box for our patrons. That's our recommendations show. If you're looking for or if you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of content that's out there, let Tom Dunn, Una Minkavna, Ethna Shorthall, Rory Cashin and Owen Doherty guide you through what you should and should not be watching this week and this month. Uh, we also have a monthly or was monthly and now weekly comedy club, an online Zoom comedy club called Return of the Crack every Friday. And patrons get first dibs on tickets to that. It's really a charity fundraiser. We give profits from the show to frontline charities that are in desperate need, coping and attempting to cope with the increased demand for their services. Jigsaw.ie is my own chosen charity partner and the chosen charity partner of our podcast here. If you want to support them, go to jigsaw.ie and see the incredible work they do for youth mental health in Ireland at all times, but most of all during this pandemic. Well, Keith McDonnell was a friend of mine from the comedy circuit for years. He and I bumped into each other backstage up and down the UK as we travelled around trying to make people laugh on stage. Little did we know that Keith would become a massively successful author with his Dublin trilogy and the McGarry Stateside series. It's an extraordinary success story that I'll let you I'll let you hear from him. But his new book is the one that I'm urging people to go out and get their hands on. It's under his new pen name, C.K. MacDonald. The book is called Stranger Times. I, of course, read it in preparation for this episode. And it is just a joyful read and a great bit of escapism during these strange days. It's about a weekly newspaper dedicated to the weird and wonderful, but most of all weird, things in life. It's a publication for the unexplained and the inexplicable. Well, at least that's their pitch. And the reality is much less auspicious, as they say here. Their editor is a drunken, foul-mouthed, foul-tempered husk of a man who thinks little and believes less of the publication he edits. And while his staff are a ragtag group of wastrels and misfits, each with their own secrets to hide and access to grind. And as for the assistant editor, well, that job is a revolving door and it has just revolved to reveal Hannah Willis who's got her own set of problems. I really can't recommend this book, Stranger Time, C.K. MacDonald, enough. And you'll understand exactly how brilliant it is and the wit and language of it when you hear this conversation with Keeve here. To hear the full conversation, become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and start enjoying the hundreds of episodes that I've logged over the last eight years there with the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores. So here it is. It's the Keeve McDonald episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately 
I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Rigo! Keith McDonald, it's brilliant to finally have you on The Irishman Abroad. And, you know, in a weird kind of way, I feel like our lives have run parallel to each other for quite some time, if not you being have kind of lived it already for me in that you very much went out on your own and said, you know what, I don't need someone to tell me I can do this. I believe I can do this. And I'm going to try it. How much of your life is down to that, that epiphany? And when did that epiphany occur? Oh, first, I would thanks very much. But yeah, it's great to be on. But yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that um, I, you kind of reach a sort of breaking point. Weirdly, when I was because I basically what happened was I wrote my first book, uh, A Man at One of Those Faces, and we couldn't get any interest. We tried to go on a traditional route with publishing where um just going to agents and stuff. I remember I was on my honeymoon and we got the first email we ever got from an agent. This woman asked for the rest of the book. And we, I was literally, we set, sent it out and went on honeymoon. And we literally thought, oh my God, they're going to start flooding in now. I was the only agent. And to be honest, it later turned out that woman, I think, was checking if I knew any famous comedians who were willing to write a book. <laughs> it was like I literally had a meeting and I came out of it. It was only later on picking back. I went, that wasn't really even about me, was it? <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was quite depressing. So literally, and and we actually got to the point, uh, never do this if you're writing a book, folks. We got to the point where we actually paid a a so-called agent, not the one I have, but to read the book and give us feedback. And I remember, I remember the point really clearly where he he was sort of dodging me for a while. Then he rang me um, and I was sitting in my, in my office in my apartment in in the center of Manchester. And he went, the thing is, it's too funny and it's too Irish. What? And then it sort of went dead. Like, exactly. It went dead for a second and I didn't say anything. And he went, you've got to be able to take criticism in this business. And I went, right. I think the problem we're having is I don't recognise that as criticism. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, literally, that is paid for the apartment I'm sitting in. Um, and it was like, at that point, I remember telling my wife and we literally, um, we sort of started start, we initially talked about self-publishing and dismissed it. Went, oh, and we had the same conversation. If anyone's thinking of doing a book, you're know, looking at, oh, there's so many bad self-published books. And, oh, it's because you can't get a proper deal and stuff. Hmm. And my wife, frankly, went, God bless her, just went, oh, this is ridiculous. So we are, no, we are just going to do this ourselves. This is nonsense. And, and we did. You started doing the research and stuff. And, and it's it's one of these things where look, a lot of people do do it badly. But if you actually, it's like what I think, it's like you with a podcast, you know, you know if you do these things properly, you can find people. And if you do it in a quality way, it's like with everything, even when you start stand up, as you know yourself, you've got to look like a, a professional a long time before you become a professional. True. Because people will pay you when you look like you should be someone who is supposed to be getting paid for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the thing. And that's, you know, and so we sort of went, right, well, we're going to get good editor, good cover, cover designers and stuff. And we, we put the first book out when it started small, but we actually got a great editor. And his big piece of advice to us was, Look, 
this is like he actually rang me here he, this this is the second half of that 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 sort of story is he rang me when he was supposed to be giving me feedback and i thought oh he's going to give me the two like, funny two irish again or it's going to be he hasn't done it he's going to give me some <laughs> waffly excuse and this guy scott god bless him rang me up and he's he's actually i didn't realize at the time but he'd actually been like the head buyer for Waterstones at one point in Britain. And he's now a freelance editor who works on loads of different, very impressive projects. And he rang me up and went, um, why have you not got a book deal? Wow. Like, well, nobody, nobody's read the book. Like literally no one had, they all, no one was interested because they read the pitch or whatever it was. And he went, would you like a book deal? And I was like, cause I know a lot of people I could, we could send it around. And literally at that point I was going, a book, covering them i've told people it's coming out now um, and i must admit and in the first couple of months i thought i'd made a terrible mistake where it was started off and then you kind of you know you have the date as my wife loves pointing out now is remember the days when nobody bought a book do you remember the days when you got excited and you rang me up because you, you sold eight paperbacks and then you found out it was because your 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 older sister had bought eight paperbacks <laughs> <laughs> to give to her friends it's like you know and it's, do you remember those days I went, yeah you, you do have to kind of keep remembering them because it's it's a weird thing where you forget i have noticed that look i'm not sort of any kind of level of success it's a weird thing i've noticed that it's sort of like the water rises and you notice it for a bit, and then you go, oh, yeah, the waters have risen a bit. But you don't kind of, you have to kind of remember the, the difference mm-hmm. between where you were and where you are now. And I've actually, over the last year, the year we've all had, I think the one thing I've done weirdly for myself is I've got a lot better at recognizing when things are going well and being thankful for it and being mm-hmm. thankful for what I have in life. And I'm a very lucky man because it is, it is a weird thing where you, you will keep pushing yourself, and you should, but it's important to remember that, you know, actually realize that you've already kind of got up a couple of mountains well man this uh this new book is extraordinary it's called the stranger times and it's written under your new name ck mcdonald we don't need to go into why you you've done that i mean it's a new it is a departure from that extraordinary trilogy that people will already know and love when you decide to depart into kind of Something that's, as you say, less funny and less Irish is weird. <laughs> weird that that's the case. Uh, well, it's about as funny, I'd say, but yeah, less, certainly de- a lot less Irish. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't. I, I there's there's so like I I said this to Mikey, my son. I said, take this book here, Mikey, The Stranger Times, and I said, open it on any page, and he opened it up, and this is over breakfast, and I just read the three sentences that I first looked at. And we did it a few times, Keeve. And each time we both leaned our heads back laughing. There's there's so many laughs in it that you're spoiled. As a reader, you're spoiled. But, you know, you are still making a choice to move the, sh- the show to Manchester from Dublin. What went into that decision? And are both places places that you really wanted to capture in these books yeah i think part of it is the, the, the dublin thing is is you know it's kind of in your your bones and you, you can you can write it and stuff and i've even done books now where bunny's gone to america and stuff and weirdly that's almost that's kind of easier to write because it almost feels like you know america because you see it so much on tv <laughs> yeah. in a certain way but manchester is where i live and i kind of annoyed me because someone asked why did you write something in manchester and somebody went and I was like, eh, I don't know why. Like, I should know. Because I really, genu- I genuinely love Manchester. I, I actually, honestly, God, say, 
Manchester kind of reminds me of Dublin when I was growing up. It has a really similar vibe to it, where um, like music and stuff is a big deal in this town. And not even just in the obvious ways from the big names that have come from here. But like if you look at the amount of gigs and stuff, I mean, you know yourself, if you're looking at where stand-up comedians live in Britain, there's obviously a lot around London. But then the other location is there's loads around Manchester. And it's because it's the kind of place that attracts that. It has that energy to it where if, you know, if you're, you know, things do art and stuff like that, a lot happens here in theatre. So it's a very vibrant city and I love it for that. And the people are amazing. I think I was saying one of the first times I was here, long before I ever lived here, I saw a kid drop some litter and then an old lady saw him do it and literally walloped him in the back of the head and told him to pick it up. <laughs> and I thought... Now, that's something you could probably see happen in maybe Dublin or Cork as well, because there is that kind of vibe to those cities as well, probably. A kid she but, did um, not know. <laughs> yeah, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> it certainly didn't look like she did. Um, but it has that vibe to it. Because people have this thing about Northerners are more friendly, and they are, but they're also just more involved. <laughs> like, they will, if you're doing something they don't like, they will come up and tell you about it. Whereas in London, like, you know yourself, I lived in London for many years, and like somebody could be doing anything on the tube and people will just sit there and wait for their stop and try not to make eye contact. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in Manchester, they do properly get involved. So I kind of had it was one of those things. that I love the city. And weirdly, at the time, like the Dublin books had taken off and I was I was signing with an agent and stuff when they were kind of going, look, do you want to is there something else you want to pitch? Because as we sort of said off air. Weirdly, the Dublin books are all done independently by the company, myself, and my wife own, and we can't get a publishing deal because they're too successful. Because if we actually had to go to the traditional publishing now, like my agent went, I just on the back of a fag pack at the first time he met me, he just went, yeah, there's no way. For the amount of money they'd have to give you for you to give them the rights now, mm. that would, there's no way. That Amazing. would break their model. Uh, yeah, no, it's, which is just a mad thing, isn't it? But they said, do you want to do something else? And Because I was like, you know, I'm not entirely against traditional publishing by any means. And I was kind of looking at serious crime books. I had a load of ideas and stuff. And weirdly, the stranger times, the idea, because I've written TV a lot. I was saying I've had about 10 or 12 different TV scripts optioned that never went anywhere. And I was kind of, frankly, going round and round the mill on that, where I got to the point where I was still doing, before I started writing a book, I was still doing the TV scripts. But I think in hindsight, I got to that point where I wasn't getting something made because I hadn't got something made yet. Do you know what I mean? Like, it felt like my shot might have gone or something where yeah. it was just felt like you've been around. You're a name people knew and they went, oh, yeah, no, we had some of his before. And it was good, but it didn't go anywhere. And it felt like in hindsight, looking back on it, maybe that was the case. So but I had one of the ones I had was I, I wrote a sitcom like this was 15 years ago, probably, man. And um I was because I've always been obsessed with weird news and like the 14 times and kind of odd little news stories from around the world and all that stuff. And I wrote a, a sitcom based in a newspaper that reported that stuff. And I think my agent at the time just didn't get it. And so I, I, I don't even remember her giving me any feedback on it, if I'm honest. Some of those things that went, oh, yeah, no, that's good. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about it later on. And it never went anywhere. And I, I just weirdly woke up one morning, remembered the idea. I got into the shower, which is where I do all my thinking. And uh <laughs> I was remembering that, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, just, I kind of remembered something funny was in the, in, that actually happens in the book that was an idea I had in the sitcom. And I remember that laugh. And, it was, and it was, then I was walking to my office, because I have a writing office outside of my... By the time, I had a writing office outside of my... You know, where I lived, because I could never work in my own house. Mm. Um, and it was like a 25-minute walk through Manchester. And not the salubrious part of Manchester. This is the, the rougher end of Manchester. It was like on a, on a dodgy industrial estate where my office was. But then I was just, I passed a big... Literally, I passed a big church on the way in which is 
the offices of the stranger time as it now is in the book is based heavily on that and by the time i done this walk i was running up the stairs in this crappy old building onto the second floor where my office was to get in to write stuff down because it was like that idea in this place makes sense and just the whole thing came together so fast it was like fireworks going off in your brain and you know yourself when you've got a really mm. good idea for a bit of material or something like that you're like oh my god i've got to write this down i, I, I cannot lose this yeah spear um, as they say spear the idea with a pencil before it swims away never to be seen again it's it, i love talking to you about writing and story structure and I can't wait to get into that with you because obviously that's something that's really dear to your heart and from all those years of writing TV becomes fundamental to how you understand blocking and building the architecture of story. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, Keeve, we do need to talk about your life as a stand up that brings you to this place. And so much of the things that we've referenced and the couple of bits we talked about off air, it it can feel like you're beating your head off a wall with with stand up and with TV writing. They're they're both so I know that actors will say that no, we've got the monopoly on beating your head off a wall <laughs> because they they so often do the work and then get told you're not getting paid for it after the audition. But with stand up, like it is, it's a soul destroying. (laughs) It's a soul destroying job that we all sign up for on the basis that there are nights when it feels great. When you chose to move over to the UK, I believe it was on the decision the decision was that you couldn't do stand up in front of people who knew you why was that yeah i literally because i yeah i I literally started stand up in in london and i i kind of deliberately i actually i got a a secondment from the job i was in i actually had that moment which probably a lot of people have had in their lives where i was working in dublin i was working in it for a company up the other side of blanchardstown where i'm from and i had a great time was working with lovely people and stuff and I had that weird moment. I distinctly remember it where I was driving home one day and I, for some reason I noticed the date and I realised that, oh, that happened exactly a year ago. And this was before the time of Facebook where we all know what happened a year ago. <laughs> this was, but some, some date stuck in my head. I went, oh yeah, that was a year ago. And then I went, what have I done in the last year? Like, I would have been probably, and I was probably about, uh, God, I, I don't know, I'm t- my late 20s at the time. And I was like, what's changed in the last year? I was like, nothing i mean i've had a perfectly good time like but mm. nothing's actually changed and then you kind of have that moment where you go so is this my life now like about, i i always thought i was heading somewhere else i was in bands and stuff and i was like and then that that sort of you know bat, if you ever think being a if you ever think being a comedian is hard be, be a musician especially <laughs> when you're when you're the drummer and you're herding the rest of the cats into the room every day oh man but yeah so but i but you know so i always thought i was going to be a musician i was and um then that wasn't working out and i was like wow and I've never really done anything here, you know, and I, can, I, I sort of always wanted to, to write comedy stuff. I did a radio writing course in R, RTE had and I did that and I got a I actually got a radio script was uh, the PG O'Connor Award. That was it. Yeah, I got a radio script into the final of that. And yeah, and but I just had that moment where I went, wow, I should do something or I'm never going to do something. You know that way where you're like, because. And yeah, so I, got no, I think there's a lot London. of people that will identify with that. I mean, there, yeah. there's a weird coziness to Dublin that you can mm. you can tread water for for quite 
a long time and there can be a feeling of uh, we're just going around in circles here. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, look at the Irishmen abroad, we're talking about it, that that's the, the thing is almost, I think it's probably not, it's probably for a lot of people the same thing where if you want to really change your life, it's you almost need to displace yourself and put yourself out of your comfort zone. So I, I went to London, I was working outside of London and I was living in a place called uh, High, no, I was living in Maidenhead, working in High Wycombe, which is that sort of area around London where I'll be honest, it's, it's a lot of it look, look, can, can, tends to look quite the same. It's all that sort of satellites, towns and all that. But some yeah, it's nice. Wernham Hog. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the vibe I was thinking of. That, that's the place I worked for six months. But I basically did a did a writing course when I was there and I started doing stand-up and um, I can weirdly remember. It's odd because I don't have big moments in my life. Like the only time in my life I've ever spoken to myself in a mirror like somebody in a film. <laughs> <laughs> was I was I was in Maidenhead on my own in this apartment. I was doing that doing this a comment, and I had I was doing stand up. I did my first gig in a in a in a pub in London, and it went well. In hindsight, it went well because a bunch of American students found my accent hilarious. Because I would I, as you as you know well, I speak very fast anyway. On my first ever stand-up gig, I'd imagine I must have sounded like a coked-up fax machine. <laughs> uh, I would have just literally—I would have done fifteen minutes of material in about eleven seconds. <laughs> but weirdly, they laughed, and that's all I took away from it. And then gigs two to five went badly to various degrees. And on my sixth one, I was signed up for this gig and thing called the Laughing Horse. You might remember mm-hmm. in London and. And they had a competition thing they did every Sunday. And I remember sitting down looking in the mirror because it was this big mirror in this in this bedroom in this apartment and going, look, they're expecting you to come. You can't let them down. And barring else, they didn't care. Those are what people turn up in hindsight. They, but those things, 20 stand-up comedians turn up. They just throw up anyone. They don't care. They're just trying to sell some drinks. But you can't let them down. And it was literally, they did that thing about do this do this, pointed at myself, went, do this, and then you can stop doing it, but you have to do this, because if you don't do it tonight, you're a coward. If you decide you don't do it after this, fair enough. But if you don't do it tonight, you're a coward. In the mirror, uh, you I'm, pointing the finger in, at yourself. Yeah, like a real <laughs> terribly bad piece of written, cliched film. I did that to myself in real life. And then, uh, bizarrely, I went to that thing. I came second to the competition. I lost to some bloke with stolen material. But weirdly, I there was a guy, a sort of odd little bloke standing at the back of the room who was also a comedian, went did one liners that died. His name was uh, a man called Gary Delaney, who you know well, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, now thankfully a very successful stand up comedian who was my flat, we ended up being flatmates for a decade and stuff. And um, honestly, because we became mates, we bonded over spotting the jokes the guy was nicking because we were both comedy nerds. And then weirdly, Gary was always because he's a very determined guy as well. You want to talk about sticking to it. Gary has done amazing. Nobody's worked harder than that man to get where he is uh, and to be as good at what he does. And um, but since then, that, weirdly, that night I met him and then we sort of became the support structure. And without him, I, I wouldn't have gone on in comedy. I'm sure I would have given up. But he was just the, the, the thing that kept me going, I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it's so funny to think that if you hadn't met him, because uh, I think that uh, when we take on these difficult things in our lives, that we can either find the Gary Delaney or <laughs> find ourselves isolated and go, oh, this isn't for me because I can't even find people in it who I relate to. You know, Gary... For people, people will know Gary from, uh, you know, Mock the Week and his his best selling books of one liner jokes. He's 
you know, I can remember seeing Gary in the BBC uh, New Comedy Awards before I'd even started (laughs) comedy. And, you know, one of his jokes at the time, still still with me, (laughs) was uh, Tiger Woods. That was no place for a picnic. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, so so bad. Well, the weirdest thing is because like, he brought out a book of uh, one liners just b- before Christmas. And the really odd thing about it is it's kind of like because I remember those because like, I was there when he was trying them out and stuff like that. Reading through that for me is really odd because it's kind of like a sort of autobiography of my life <laughs> where I can remember where we were when I first heard those jokes. Because, uh, yeah, it's such an odd thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the reason why I, I you know focused on Gary for a minute, because like. The, the people you are around, they really do influence your approach to it, right? Uh, no matter what it is you're doing. This is why you don't want your kids hanging out with losers. But <laughs> Gary was, you know, the hardest working man in comedy. There's no there's no way to describe to people how hard it is to craft one of those pieces of crystal. As silly as the Tiger Woods joke is. It's still there's an economy of language to it where he's he he is pairing off syllables, not just words. He's literally going, that's punchier if I say that rather than when we went there, we didn't realize this was a terrible place for a picnic. I mean, how much does that influence you and your work ethic? Because. Honestly, when I go through the list of books that you've produced now, that there must be a hearkening back to that kind of Gary Delaney raw laser focus. I mean, to a, to a certain extent, I think the big thing is because weirdly, as comedians, we we're very different. It's kind of why we ended up working together a lot as well, because people like the fact that I was sort of more storytelling where he was that one liner thing. But I think the big thing from it, because Gary just... For, for reference, he's married to Sarah Millican, as a lot of people probably know. And as look, when you talk about hard workers, that's the reason the two of them work so well beautifully. Is she is such an incredibly hard worker as well. Mm. I mean, I remember distinctly because she was sort of she. We never sort of lived together, but she was in our, our house quite a bit when they were obviously going out. And uh, I was going out with my now wife at the time. And I distinctly remember one night turning to my now wife and Ben going, "I know, like compared to the other two comedians in the house." I look like a slacker, but I'm actually really quite hardworking. <laughs> it's just literally I'm living with the two Duracell bunnies of British comedy. But honestly, outside of this house, I'm really quite hardworking. You should see what other comedians are doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most of them aren't even wearing pants most days. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I've, I've completely wandered off. Oh, the, the, but the work ethic and thing like that. Yeah, I think it is. You know, you do learn that. But I think the the other side of it as well is. When you've kind of been going around, you did the comedy circuit and then I was writing scripts and nothing was going anywhere. The great thing with the books were after you'd written the first one, you kind of realize you can. But also when you start, people start asking when the next one's coming and you think you're sitting down every day and going, well, what I'm doing now is going somewhere. It's not just going to be a script that's going to go to two people in the BBC mm. and never be seen again. Yeah, and there's I think an I appetite that the- for what you're doing. Yeah, but there's also, you know, it's going somewhere. It's not, it's going to exist because mm. all those sitcom scripts don't really exist anywhere, do they? And it's, and when you have that, that just sort of drives you. And I think I was in a situation where, honestly, I'd kind of been, it's like I'd been swimming around in the in the sort of darks of the ocean for a long time and suddenly the sunlight came down and I realised you could go upwards and there was this light and then you start going, right, well, I'll start legging it towards that then. Um, 
not to make it sound like I'm going to heaven, but you know what I mean? When you, when you all of a sudden you got this impetus of, oh, wow, pe- people, I can do this and people like it. And it finally feels like, because that's, you know, I, I gave up stand up a while ago and, and, you know, and I really love stand up in a lot of ways, but I kind of knew where my ceiling was. And I think the great thing with books is still haven't found the ceiling. Don't feel at any point like I'm contained. I feel like, you know, the world's my oyster and it's an exciting place to be. Um, and much as I love stand up and I've, the height of respect for it and like i was saying to you i was said to you off air and i'll say it on air because i think it's an important thing to say and don't edit this out of the podcast but if you've not seen jar's uh latest stand-up special i mean i, I think i rang you straight after i watched it because i went i was like we you know because weirdly this is an odd thing but i think we've said it before with other irish comedians on the podcast we don't work together that much because they, they don't generally put, <laughs> yeah they won't let us put it on unless it's a paddy's day special yeah which paddy's day specials by the way quick really quick side note but they are hilarious in britain because invariably what happens is they will book an entirely irish bill every time i've done one after the first time i made a mistake i say so that's a little taste of keeve the whole thing unabridged unedited uncut the full keeve mcdonald experience and conversation with all its laughs is available on patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad every week we post a segment of the interview here on itunes or wherever you're getting your podcast for free but to get the full experience and to get three plus maybe five podcasts a week sometimes uh, and our online comedy club you really need to be a patron at this stage it's only about five dollars a month for all of that content and uh, you'll know that you'll be able to walk around with the spring in your step of knowing that you're keeping this show on the road through these crazy times and you'll never be short of something to listen to. Big shouts to Brian Conley for his production, to John Marr for his extra research, to Keeve himself and this extraordinary book that he's written, The Stranger Times, available absolutely everywhere now. Why not come over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear the rest of it. But for now, thanks to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And I will be back on Tuesday after our PB event for the Irishman running abroad with Sonia O'Sullivan to discuss recovery or recovering from injury and from just overdoing it out there with the running. I'll talk to you then.